This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Michael Van, your host, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Kim Wagner, Professor of British Imperial History at the University of London, Queen Mary. Dr. Wagner is a prolific historian and quite the storyteller, and the author of several books. These include Thugi, Banditry and, and the British in Early 19th Century India, Stranglers and Bandits, a historical anthology of Thugi, the Great Fear of 1857, Rumors, Conspiracies, and the Indian Uprising of 1857, and The Skull of Alam Beg, The Life and Death of a Rebel of 1857. And a few months ago, uh, my very first podcast for New Books in History was on The Skull of Alam Beg. So I strongly recommend going back, listening to that podcast, and also grabbing the book. It is a wonderful, wonderful uh, micro history of uh, about 1857. But today, we'll be talking about his latest book. Amritsar 1919, An Empire of Fear and the Making of a Massacre, with Yale University Press 2019. Now, from its opening pages, Dr. Wagner tells the readers he wants to challenge the way that the massacre has been recorded in popular official memory. Indeed, the book starts with um, a description of the 1982 film by Richard Attenborough, Gandhi, and its recreation of the, uh, the massacre in Amritsar. And he notes that and in the opening of the book that he wants to challenge this sort of received image of what the massacre was. So welcome to New Books in History, Kim. Uh, hi, Mike. Thank you for having me again. So, yeah, you're, you're a returning champion. Um, so please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a historian of the Raj and uh, someone who's written several books on violence in the, on the British Empire in India. Um. Well, I've always been um, interested in, in the history of British Empire and uh, sort of childhood fascination uh, with the thugs, with uh, colonial conspiracies and violence kind of just uh, stuck with me. Uh, and, and really, I'm a, ni- um, a 19th century historian, which is why I've written about uh, the thugs and the 1857 uprising. Uh, and uh, the Amritsar massacre was sort of my first foray into the 20th century, uh, but one that I kind of felt was necessary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, welcome to the 20th century. As someone who mostly works on the 20th century, we're we're, ha- we're happy to have you. It's uh, it's Thanks. quite the century. It it it, it ends all right. <laughs> wow. Um, so um, in in the book, you. Um, you you discuss uh, obviously the book is about violence, and you you discuss 
um, the way the role of violence in British uh, British rule in India. And you state British rule in India, in other words, was sustained by the application of exemplary violence. And this became one of the founding narratives of the colonial state in India after 1857. So can you expand upon that? What was the role of this exemplary violence? How was it a, a tool of governance? And also, maybe you could talk about what's different about violence in the colonial empire than violence within a nation state in Europe or violence within the uh, Chinese dynasty or um, uh, an empire in West Africa. What's what's special about colonial violence? Uh, that's a really good question. And it's one that I am uh, in some ways still working on to elaborate. Uh, because if, if you sort of disaggregate uh, the actual uh, components of any kind of state violence, really, uh, they, they do look somewhat similar. Uh, vil- uh, villages have been burned, uh, you know, th- throughout history, whether it's been in, in Europe uh, or the extra European world. Um, civilians have been targeted. Um, the laws of war, such as they were, uh, have been, you know, pushed aside and, and ignored. But what I think makes uh, colonial violence um, something that's quite distinct is uh, the logic that that sort of uh, justifies it. And so much of when you look at the violence of, of, of European or Western empires, uh, what, what really sets it apart is, is the justification and the rationale that's presented, um, where the, the the sort of the basic uh, moral framework is, is quite interestingly uh, one, which is about essentially when we're talking about the 19th and uh, 19th century and the early 20th century, uh, the civilizing uh, mission, which means that uh, colonial wars are by definition uh, just wars. So, so there's never real, really any question as to whether or not what the colonizers do is justified. Uh, and then it really becomes uh, uh, an issue of, of, of justifying the, the, the specific kinds of violence that you see. And, and one of the things that struck me when I worked on 1857 and the kind of really brutal and demonstrative uh, executions and mass violence that you saw is that it's it's not about punishing the guilty. Uh, it's not sort of an eye for an eye or uh, something like that. It's not justice in a European sense of the word. It's purely performative. Uh, it's about sending a message about uh, the strength of colonial authority. And because it's a colonial situation, you don't have this sort of Foucauldian um, scenario in which the um, the public, the spectators who are witnessing a public execution, to some extent have to uh, acknowledge uh, the, the, the justness of the state. They don't have to approve of, of, of what's going on. Rather, they are direct recipients of the violence. So colonial executions, for instance, are targeted at the entire indigenous population who are all potentially uh, criminals in the sense that they might potentially resist colonial rule. So I think what, what, what sets colonial violence aside is, is the ways that violence is assumed to work and what levels of violence are presumed to be necessary to maintain colonial rule. And one of the things that really struck me when working uh, first on, on 1857 and later uh, on, on um, the, uh, the subject of this book is the, the continuities 
that you really see between the 19th and the 20th century, which, as far as I'm concerned, uh, are really underexplored within the historiography. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, you, you mentioned the executions around 1857, and this is the uh, much of the subject of your your last book, the Skull of Alembeg, and you know the, the the types of executions that they're doing are you know, the, the most famous thing is is tying the accused to a cannon and shooting off the cannon and blowing them to pieces in front of hundreds or thousands of assembled uh, sepoys, uh, South Asian troops, and uh, and also civilians as well, right? So it has this performative or pedagogical component. Yeah, I mean, this is communicative uh, violence, and it's one that, in, in a strange way, is reflexive of uh, cultural sensitivity, uh, if you want. Uh, it's the instrumentalization of, of Orientalism and, and colonial knowledge, uh, because the destruction of, of the body uh, is meant to prevent uh, proper burial, both according to Hindu and Muslim uh, tradition, which, of course, means that this is not just... Uh, state violence or even sort of colonial military violence as we usually think of it, but it's actually a type of spiritual warfare in which the colonial state seeks to um, calibrate, culturally calibrate the kind of violence that's inflicted. Right, right. And and that it's it's done as, again, this performative violence, this act to to teach those who are viewing, uh, viewing the execution and to, um, to scare them. Um, it all, it also, the discussions of colonial violence also make me think about sort of the, the unequal colonial arithmetic. Um, there was an, uh, an headline in the satirical website, the onion uh, about 15 years ago. And it was something along the lines of the equivalent of four Americans were killed in Afghanistan today. And the joke was that you know, four American lives is equal to some other number of Afghan lives. And, you know, was it 40? Was it 400? Um, do you do you see that sort of uh, asymmetric uh, uh, importance of the value of white lives versus colonial subject lives um, in this in this setting, in this history? Oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, if we see similar things today, they originate in, in the colonial context uh, and in the colonial encounter. Um, there's, I don't want to sort of jump the gun and talk too much about Amritsa, but when you look at the, the disparity in, in, in casualties among civilians, it's, it's extremely striking that um, you know, a, a half a dozen Europeans uh, is, is an enormous tragedy while hundreds of, of, of uh, Indian civilians uh, is, is, is just simply, you know, uh, unfortunate. Um, but, but, that, but that is indeed, right. you and know, speak, speaks to the very logic of, of, of the racial hierarchies uh, that underpin so much of, of the enactment of colonial violence then and now. Yeah. And you, you, argue, you argue in the book that those who would see Amritsar as this aberration are ignoring the fact that this is actually the standard practice of colonial violence throughout the empire, correct? Yes. I mean, if, if we think about, uh, I mean, it's, it's difficult to write about the British Empire uh, today uh, during sort of an era of, of Brexit and resurgent empire nostalgia um, without uh, making a broader argument uh, about the nature 
of the empire. And the Amritsar massacre uh, is often invoked uh, sort of in a tokenistic way as, yes, you know, there was the, and I I put, I have this in my book, it's a Daily Mail piece that talks about the occasional massacre, and that's a direct quote. Uh, and so people would obviously talk about Amritsar or mention Amritsar, maybe Bloody Sunday in Ireland, uh, or they'll talk briefly, you know, mention Mau Mau as these sort of exceptional moments when rogue officers went off script and sort of let the side down. Uh, but they're really sort of the exceptions that pr- prove the rule, presumably, uh, which is about the, the empire essentially as being a force for good in the world. Um, so Amritsa becomes the sort of the, the token bone you throw liberals to show you, yes, of course, there were, you know, there were some unfortunate incidents. But by and large, we did good uh, when we used to run the world. Uh, and that's, of course, uh, politically. Uh, uh, you know, and a, a quite impoverished uh, analysis, but also historically, it, it's, it simply doesn't stand up to closer scrutiny. Since the, the very logic that underpinned all these events uh, really tie together both these sort of exceptional massacres with the everyday violence. So the same logic, the same colonial logic that allowed a British soldier to kick his servant to death and get away with it. Is not that different from the 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 logic that uh, sort of dictated these forms of, of performative violence on a much larger scale, and I think that's it's really important to not just focus on the big events in quotation marks, uh, but rather link the exception to the norm and show how they're linked. Because otherwise, you are just talking about a few sort of fluke events, and that's certainly not the case here. Right, right. Now, also in this discussion of colonial violence, there's certain kinds of violence that can be inflicted on black and brown bodies that would not be inflicted on white bodies, either in the in the empire or back at home. I mean, the, there's violence against strikes and uh, and and protests in in England at the time, but these kind of things simply wouldn't happen to white bodies, correct? Yes, uh, that, but that's, I mean, that's one of the defining characteristics of colonial violence, that, that it is defined by uh, what has been described as the rule of colonial difference, which is, as you already alluded to, the fact that um, indigenous non-white people don't count uh, for as much as white people do, but also that they have to be punished uh, or defeated uh, in different ways. Uh, and and that that really sort of comes back to the notion of, of the violence as being communicative. Uh, that it doesn't really matter who is executed or who is shot when you're putting down a riot. It's it's simply uh, the violence as as an end in and of itself. Uh, because right, since we're yeah. talking about a colonial uh, situation, uh, Western imperial powers are always ruling through coercion rather than consent, regardless of the uh, sort of number of, of local allies who, who support uh, colonial rule, at the end of the day, the only thing that really, the only guarantee of, of colonial authority is brute force. And that's, we kind of see that sort of being expressed in, in the purest form during these moments of crisis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. 
So in, in the introduction, um, you write the following. I'm going to read a, a somewhat extended quote here. In this book, I have sought to show the interplay between a colonial mentality rooted in the 19th century and the contingencies of the unrest in 1919, an awareness of and attention to the various temporalities at play within a single event that I have elsewhere referred to as, quote, thick periodization. The approach I have taken in this book might perhaps be described as a micro-history of a global event. Then you continue, whereas most studies of Amritsar focus on its aftermath, its political impact, and the public debates and legal issues it raised, that is, the massacre as a historical watershed, I focus narrowly and unapologetically on how events unfolded at Amritsar during April 1919. In doing so, I have sought to uncover the local dynamics of escalation, which reached their violent climax at Jilanwala Bagh through the different experiences of a range of individuals, British and Indian, men and women. So I want to ask you, I, I really love this term, thick periodization. And what, what do you mean by this? And I, you're, I assume you're playing on Geertz's thick description. And can you sort of unpack that term? Yes. So... The Amritsa massacre is usually or almost exclusively discussed within the historiography as the sort of opening shot uh, of the resistance movement in India and the sort of the first, the beginning of, of the, the process that leads inexorably to independence in, in 1947. And it's really only as the catalyst that it is considered to be important. Um, so it's in many ways... Um, the historical analysis of the Amritsa massacre has been overdetermined by what later happens in a sort of a you know conventional teleological fashion, uh, and it's it's for me it was it's really unsatisfactory to read about an event when people don't really care about it, but only kind of they can't wait to get the massacre over and done with and move on to the important stuff, which is about. Uh, the nature of, of, of British rule in India and Gandhi and the change of politics. There's sort of um, an, a, an impatience with the nitty-gritty details because what really matters within the conventional analysis is, is what follows, you know, decades later. Uh, and so I kind of wanted to to push aside the the, 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 the historiographical status of the mask and rather look at, well, Nobody in April 1919 knew that this was a watershed. Uh, nobody knew that, you know, two decades later, the British would leave India. So what happens if we push aside everything? Or, you know, of, obviously we can't ignore what we know. But if we at least sort of pretend that this could have been could have been a blip and maybe, you know, the British had remained in India for 100 years, uh, all sorts of things could have happened. People didn't know that at the moment. I think we, we really lose something in terms of, of historical insight because of our own you know, perspective, which is obviously teleological. Uh, so that was one thing I was mm -hmm. trying to do. Um, but then the, the, the thick periodization thing uh, is, is, is really about the, the reason I even you know, ended up writing a book about Amritsa is because of my earlier work on 1857. There's just so many continuities. And then I started to realize that um, rather than seeing the Amritsa massacre as this sort of post-First World War slash Wilsonian moment, uh, really a product of its time. It's, it's sort of, this is when so many books begin. They begin 
you know, 1918, 1919, and, you know, that's the interwar period. We have this sort of established chronology. Um, really, it's not, it's not the beginning of the end of British rule. Analytically, it makes more sense to look at it as, as, as the final stages of a much longer process, which for me, uh, as, as I argue at least, began in the 19th century. And when you look at mm-hmm. how the British are experiencing these chaotic uh, weeks and months uh, in, in the spring of 1919, they're not they're 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 not uh, thinking about in a, in a very interesting ways. They're not thinking about the post First World War crisis. They're thinking about things that happened in the 19th century. So these uh, what I've referred to as a mutiny motif, the sort of deep seated almost paranoid colonial mindset shaped the way that British colonial officials and British civilians in India, even after the First World War, experienced which what is the the, the emergence of anti-colonial nationalism as a mass movement. And so a uh, thick periodization, yes, it, it, it is a play of Geertz and, and uh, probably also a bit pretentious to try and coin in a, a phrase like that. But trying to 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 really get to grips at the way that people they interpret the chaos around them through whatever precedents that they invoke and in 1919 it was events uh six decades earlier that they were thinking of so that's that's the you know that that's what i'm trying to to get at with that uh, terminology yeah, no, I, I think it's an excellent, a very, very thought-provoking term. Um, I also love the phrase "microhistory of a global event." Um, can you can you expand upon that? I mean, you, you you said it's 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 they don't understand it as a watershed at the time, but then you go on to call it this microhistory of a global event. So, what what do you mean by that? Well, originally I thought I would write a global history of the Armritza massacre, and I thought I would write about you know what's going. This is, I mean, the unrest in in India you know, coincides with the Egyptian revolution and uh, the Irish War of Independence is kicking off. There's so much going on here that is in many ways tied together. So I thought, you know, clearly uh, a global history is the way to go. But the more I looked at it and the more I looked at the um, the sort of street level, um, you know, the, the, the dynamic of the riots uh, and then sort of the individual's letters were being written, is is no there are very few references to what else is going on um in the world at the moment uh, and i and then sort of as you start working i i've researched this for many years and you get a lot of time to think about how best to narrate it i realized you know if i could if i could just get the basic facts right and kind of put the reader on the scene at the moment when things happened uh, at the most detailed level possible uh, i'd be quite happy with that um i think there's something um i mean this is not the first book about the Umritza massacre and i think there's a particular uh and, and quite problematic uh dynamic that happens when when historians and writers say write about big events well-covered events it is what i would call the titanic effect or the d-day effect um that they never go back to to scratch, you know. When 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 you have, you know, twenty, fifty other books on the subject, it's written before 
the one you're writing, very few people go back to scratch. Very few people revisit uh, the original sources. And therefore, they kind of just build on what is already there. Um, and so what I really wanted to do was, I mean, I actually deliberately didn't read all the secondary works on the Amritsa massacre till later. And I wanted really to get into the to the primary material in the in the in the sort of most sort of intimate sense, precisely because the Amritsar mm-hmm. massacre has this this particular uh, status both within empire but also South Asian history. Right, right. I mean, it's you know you you talk about this historical teleology, and it's you know that's an issue for historians, but it also has an impact on um, how we understand. Indian and, and British imperial political history. I mean, pe- people have made use of this event for the, the next century at this point, correct? Yeah, and it's it's still used today to bash, you know, just as a throwaway remark. Uh, but it's never understood on its own terms. The Amritsar massacre has mm-hmm. become a metaphor for the empire uh, as um, a, a, as a morally, you know, deeply problematic. Uh, proposition uh, w- without any real attempt at, at understanding what happened, uh, and and so, mm-hmm. so I mean, some 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 historical events are sort of so big that we cease to care about what actually happened, and it becomes more like just sort of the the the, the bumper sticker value of of the way that they are invoked. Right. right. Yeah. Which which leads me to another uh, quote, a little shorter quote that I want to read. And this is very similar to something you wrote in the Skull of Alam Beg. You essentially give your readers a political disclaimer when you write, quote, My particular take on the events of the Amritsar massacre will not appeal to everyone. And for those who prefer their Raj nostalgia or their Indian nationalist mythology to go unchallenged, there are literally dozens of books that will provide reassuring and politically edifying narratives. This book is not that. So what, what, how does this book challenge Raj nostalgia and how does it challenge Indian nationalist mythology? Um, I, th- I think the way both the public debate but also much of the historiography today is still mired in this oversimplistic balance sheet approach that either the British Empire was generally a force for good and the Amritsar massacre is an unfortunate event but an exception therefore does not represent anything bigger. It's, it's an anomaly that would be the, the empire nostalgic take on it, which means you, you somehow have to explain it away as a fluke. Uh, or or the, the opposite argument, uh, which you find and which is quite popular, particularly in India today, namely that uh, the British Empire was satanic and, and one long sequence of massacres, and it was the massacre itself was carefully planned and carried out because the British were evil racists. And, and uh, I mean, they, they were to some extent, uh, but, but neither of these approaches uh, are really, uh, I think it's quite self-evident that they're not adequate if we want to understand what actually happened. And I'm still of, I'm sufficiently old-fashioned to think that Making sense of what appears to be senseless acts is is what we should be doing, uh, and I don't I don't uh, I don't really care if 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 I um, I hurt people's feelings in that respect. I mean I I I I, I 
I challenge a lot of, of Indian nationalist uh, assumptions and popular assumptions about the massacre as well, because we simply don't have the evidence uh, for a number of things. But um, I, ha I have that disclaimer just to, you know, to signal that that I I don't really I don't consider myself to to uh, take sides, um, whereas so many so much of the debate today is about well you know was it good was it bad uh, guilt shame pride these kind of just very emotive and deeply unhelpful uh, ideas are floating around in the debate. Right, right. So you, you touched upon this already, but I wanted to uh, ask you to expand upon this. Um, and that's the, the question of the memory of the mutiny of 1857. And again, as you note um, in the, uh, the Skull of Allenbeg, the, the, the memory is so important for the British experience in India. So how, looking, at, looking at this case of Amritsar in, 18, or in um, 1919, how are the Britishers remembering the mutiny? How are they remembering 1857, and what what sort of tropes do they fall into? So the the reason why the uh, 1857 uprising uh, figures or looms so large in the British colonial imagination is that you do have these uh, massacres of of, of uh, European civilians, including women and children, and British colonial rule uh, was indeed uh, threatened. Uh, in 1857, it's quickly restored uh, brutally. Uh, but what uh, the British they take away, and this is why it's so problematic about you know this sort of people who who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. In this case, the British they they take the wrong lessons away from 1857, uh, which is about uh, their hold of India ultimately depends on the. Uh, application of force as a sort of as a, as a backup regardless of, of liberal uh, rhetoric uh, but also a deep-seated fear of indigenous conspiracies um, I, I today actually I just heard a podcast about conspiracy theory in America and how much you know how largely it loomed in the uh, in the era around the American Revolution and, and even before that and there's just something very similar going on uh, in terms of the way that rumors panic and and the sort of projected fears they shape British interpretations of the indigenous populations that they, they're governing so by the time we get to 1919 the notion of legitimate anti-colonial protest movements is inconceivable um, yeah. the idea is that in British rule is perceived as being just and a good thing so if you resist british british rule uh clearly uh you, you don't have a legitimate cause and and the gullible masses whom the british are protecting in sort of a traditional paternalist sense so they tell themselves uh, must have been uh, manipulated by uh, western educated uh, agitators and so the way that the british they read indian protests or unrest uh, is just deeply distorted uh, and, 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 and carries this imprint of 1857. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. So you start the book, as I mentioned, um, describing Attenborough's recreation of the massacre. And um, 
then you make us wait 160 plus pages before you actually get to the massacre. And I'll note that the part of the subtitle of the book is The Making of a Massacre. So why is it so important that you spent time focusing on the events in the weeks leading up to the April 13th massacre? Um, it actually comes uh, in part, at least, from a really brilliant article by Jordana Belkin called The Boot and the Spleen, uh, in which she argues about uh, trying to make sense of violence. And she says there's nothing more banal than, you know, pointing out that, you know, colonialism was defined by violence uh, uh, and that there's this tendency to almost taking it for granted. But what we really need to do as historians and scholars is to, well, try and unpack it and, and see how it's presumed to work and uh, the effects it actually has. And so um, I, I was always kind of troubled by the previous attempts at, at describing the Amritsar massacre, which sort of to say, oh, yeah, there's a bit of unrest in the spring, and then, you know, we have a massacre, and then we move on to the more important thing. And for me, uh, it's, 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 it's the events, it's the days preceding the massacre on the 13th of April 1919 and the unrest that engulfs uh, Amritsa in the Punjab in northern India that really uh, allows us to make sense of what happens. So it, it's about taking context seriously in some way mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and the, the the film gandhi actually does a pretty terrible job with that context correct i mean it it the the scene starts with uh, someone giving a speech that's you know presenting um uh the sort of the gandhian techniques of uh non-violence the importance of ahimsa and so forth and then the massacre just is unleashed and it is this it sort of comes as a bolt out of a blue Correct. Yeah, and and it doesn't have to be. There's there's no reason. There's no rhyme or reason for why it happens. The only thing you can sort of say is, oh, you have this uh, horrible, uh, sort of brutal, uh, stiff upper, upper lip, bro uh, broom, uh, mustache, steel-eyed um, Edward Fox representing General Dyer. So he he also embodies right. the violence right. of the empire, you know, as an individual, which makes it an ad hominem explanation for the violence but also it requires no reason so in the gandhi movie it's just sort of plonked in there in the middle of the narrative about gandhi to show that um Ga the sort of the mobilization of, of, of mass protest against the british and the strength of gandhi's uh, you know message of nonviolence was such as to provoke a violent british you know response uh, that was sort of irrational and to some extent demonstrated the truth of, of Gandhi's message. Uh, and that's really reducing the massacre to just sort of uh, a sort of a, a brief sort of incident in, in, in this, in this, what I've always referred to this much longer trajectory about the Indian struggle for, for independence. And, you know, that comes to fruition two decades later. Uh, but this assumption that you, you don't actually have to make sense of colonial violence. It just happens because the colonizers are racist and, brutal um and it also it also presents this very very easy easily digestible narrative about villains and victims and it is of course difficult not to talk about victims uh, when we're looking at something like the Amritsar massacre yet again i would say it doesn't help us understand what happens if we see if we simply issue see one side as the villains and the others as the victims
Mm-hmm. So, so what are some of the specific events that happened in Amritsar and in, in the Punjab in the days leading up to April 13th? Um, you, you talk about the Rolet Act, uh, also known as the Anarcho and Revolutionary Crimes Act. You also you touch upon uh, the impact of the, the Spanish flu, the, the flu pandemic and um, other, other forces. So what's, what, what are the key events and key sort of uh, pressures on the, uh, on Amritsar in, in, uh, in the spring of 1919? So the end of the first world war uh, does not bring relief. Uh, India has, has quite remarkably uh, been the, population has been extremely supportive of the British war effort on the assumption that this sort of expression of loyalty, I mean, there's more than an, a million Indians who either fight for the British or, or otherwise uh, serve the British as, as carriers uh, uh, in the Middle East, in the Mesopotamia and the Western Front as well. And there's huge amounts of resources and money that are actually uh, help, uh, you know, help to you know, fight the Germans. Um, and so there's this expectation that, that Indian loyalty will be rewarded at the end of the war, and this sort of global disruption of trade, the the, the impact of the flu pandemic, uh, this sort of a succession of, of, of uh, failed harvests and famines, um, this this all sort of expresses itself in the spring of 1919 when the British, instead of rewarding um, Indian support for the war, uh, decide to continue the wartime emergency measures. And so there are reforms, the Montague Chelmsford reforms, but re- they're really quite limited uh, and to some extent simply, you know, tokenistic. Um, so there's this, this expectation which is, is uh, which is followed up by extreme disappointment. And then you have the British, uh, you know, continuing the wartime emergency measures, which makes them look like um, the, the sort of, the, the the brutal uh, Prussians that they've just been you know fighting and 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 um, loving propaganda at for four years, um, and that that really gives rise to uh, Gandhi's mass movement, which protests these uh, emergency legislation. And from British perspective, the idea is that you reward loyal Indian politicians who are willing to work within the empire. Nobody's talking about independence at this point in time, but you also retain all these really quite draconian measures, which means you can arrest people, keep them without trial, uh, uh, and, you know, shut down the press and these kind of things to, to keep revolutionaries in check. So, so there's a notion of the carrot and stick. And the idea is that you can, uh, deploy them in, in a very sort of careful way, but of course it, it's 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 quite obvious uh, to many Indians at the time that really the British they rather than loosening their grip on, on, on India, they're they're actually tightening it quite significantly. Uh, but from a British perspective, mm-hmm. protests are not justified; they're not legitimate. Uh, one of the reasons being that there's no Real recognition that that Indian nationalism is a legitimate sentiment, or that one could reasonably protest against British rule. So we see mm-hmm. in so the spring in, in in that con- in in that context, there's there's a couple of specific events that happen in the in the days leading up. Correct? There's yeah uh, demonstrations and riots. Yeah. So I mean, you have these for the first time. You have mass meetings of tens of thousands of people meeting. 
and, and listening to political speeches and nationalist songs. Again, they're talking about reforms within the empire and something like dominion status. They're not calling for independence. Uh, but the way that the British are perceiving it, and you know, we've got the, the sort of the spy report, secret service uh, observers, you know, recording w- what's happening, uh, and what they see is sort of um, the potential for for another uprising. I mean, this is not that long after the Russian Revolution, so there is a heightened sense of of, of, of uh, well, fear uh, uh, in that sense, uh, and the British they think that by arresting local leaders they can sort of shut down the protests because the idea is that people have no real reason to protest and so if you just get rid of these uh seditionists as they referred to then everything will be will be calm but the opposite happens the british they preemptively arrest the the political nationalist leaders in amritsa uh, and what they've actually done is they've removed the leaders from a popular uh, popular mass movement uh, uh, that try to make it into the European lines is, of course, a, a racially fairly segregated uh, colonial um, sort of urban landscape. And the Indian protesters, they, th- they think they are negotiating with the authorities to call for the release of their leaders, uh, whereas the British, they see sort of the, the native masses, you know, charging across the railway tracks and invading what is essentially perceived as a white space. And this triggers this panic reaction uh, and so British uh, military and police open fire um, and, and kill a number of protesters. And that then that situation then escalates on, on the 10th of April 1919. And that leads to the uh, quite brutal murders of five European civilians inside the Indian part of the city. Uh, that should be seen in the context of 20, 30 Indian rioters being shot and killed. Um, and that really triggers those sort of uh, 1857 uh, memories. Uh, there's also infamously a female missionary who's cycling through Amritsa and she's attacked uh, and beaten and left for dead. And that sort of is perceived with, by the British authorities as a, as a sexual attack that again pointed back to uh, sort of the nightmare scenario of 1857. Mm-hmm. It reveals the importance of sort of the the gender nature of some of these acts of violence or perceived acts of violence. That the, you know, it's, it's one thing to kill a, a white man, but when you touch a, a white woman, there's a, a whole different set of revenge that's going to be brought out. Correct? Yeah, and, and the, those very words, uh, you know, the British officials at the time they say that you know, five European civilians, uh, men, being effectively lynched by Indian crowds was not nearly as bad as, as this female missionary being attacked because that is an attack right. on sort of the very sort of edifice of British rule in India. And of course, it, it challenges implicitly uh, white masculinity, uh, which then has to be mm-hmm. restored through violence. And then we kind of know what's going to happen next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And then, of course, that resonates with 
uh, America's history of lynching and uh, the allegations of a black man, you know, even even whistling at a white woman could lead to you know truly horrifying uh, uh, acts of violence and revenge. Um, but the uh, the Indian uh, writers also attack something else very important to the British. They they attack the bank, right? Yeah. So so they attack uh, every sort of physical manifestation of British authority since they can't actually enter the European lines. They turn their anger on the telegraph office, the post offices. They tear down telegraph lines um, and attack. Which is something the boxers did as well. Yeah. I mean, in China, the boxer rebellion tore down telegraph lines. And then the Indian rebels did in 1857. I mean, it's one of the most Mm -hmm. obvious manifestations of colonial rule is is telegraph lines and, and railway tracks and train stations, which of course also looks like it's a pre coordinated anti colonial. You know, resistance movement, uh, but really, it's it's just the most natural thing when we're looking at these sort of moments of colonial crisis. You attack the visible uh, symbols of colonial rule. Another one being churches, of course. Um, and so, 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 so the, these attacks—they're both brutal, but they're also embodied in sort of the symbolism of a challenge to uh, mm-hmm. British rule. And then the female missionary, for instance, she's beaten, but. The young men who attack her, they take off their slippers and hit her with their slippers, which is a sign of of, of disrespect. Uh, so we can see the the logic of that uh, kind of crowd violence. It's like throwing a shoe at the the white invader, uh, be it be it Amritsar or be it a press conference with uh, President George W. Bush in Baghdad, correct? Indeed. So. In terms of the the massacre itself and the the British violence inflicted upon Indian bodies, General Dyer is the figure most associated with this violence. Um, what can you tell us about him, and what did his experience in the empire bring? Uh, what what experience in the empires did he bring to the bog in April nineteen nineteen? Well, other historians have tried to explain that he was a unique character and that he was irascible he had irritable bowel syndrome and he was traumatized by his first world war uh, experience uh none of this really makes sense uh because general die was not that atypical uh, he had served uh in burma in the 1880s he had been in ireland for a bit and he was in in the middle east during the first world war he was not a particularly uh famous uh or, or noted officer but after the, the the riots that have happened, there is from official hold this uh, idea that something needs to be done. Uh, an example has to be set. And so General Dai is only the third officer within 24 hours who is sent to Amritsar in order to restore uh, British authority. And the two previous ones uh, are replaced when, when they fail to take uh, drastic measures. Uh, so General Dai, he turns up with this sort of uh, empire experience, which requires uh, non-white people to be, um, you know, the the the, the 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 logic is that that the only language you know non-white people understand is is violence, uh, and and it has to be unflinching and quick. Uh, in order to nip further unrest in the bud. Uh, and so that's what, what General Dyer does on the 13th of April, which is also 
uh, a large religious festival. So so Amritsar was was full of, of, of pilgrims as well. He heard about uh, he had banned political meetings. Order had been restored, or peace at least. Uh, and he heard there was a, a big gathering deep inside the old uh, Indian part of the city. Um, and and this is when when the analysis I think it's 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 interesting to actually sort of stop and look at the different steps that happens because the way that the massacre itself is is depicted in the Edinburgh movie is is one of of peaceful protesters literally quoting Gandhi, uh, and then you have uh, this brutal. A colonial officer in a pith helmet rolling up with armored cars and troops and carry out a massacre, uh, and it and it, it it makes no sense. Um, and that's you could say fr- fr- from one f- um, in one way that that's what happened. But if you actually look at the the uh, general die, he provided five quite detailed accounts of of his actions and explained it at some length later on. What he saw in front of him was not a peaceful crowd. He perceived it as a, a war situation, and he was entering a war zone, which is why he brought armored cars. He stationed British troops all around Amritsar, not in order to surround the city, but rather to extricate him and his men in case they were ambushed. So the scenario that's in front of, of, of General Dyer is something more like uh, Black Hawk Down. Uh, and he, he literally thinks mm-hmm. he might be ambushed by rebels and he refers to the entire population of Amritsa as rebels and the moment you realize that you know he's not experiencing the actual situation in front of him what he's experiencing is some kind of uh, paranoid um, re reoccurrence of the 1857 uprising sadly his actions you know make sense within that framework and so when he mm-hmm. he 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 comes across this massive gathering, which is about between ten and, and twenty thousand um, men, women, and children, a lot of them are simply there uh, for picnics. It's sort of a popular spot. So we're just resting. There's gamblers there, there's children playing. There's a small political meeting taking place. He thinks he's caught the rebels, uh, and and he he simply acts immediately. He marches in with fifty armored. Uh, um, armed troops and opens fire uh, at point blank range. And this is the Jalan Wallabag is this big enclosure. It's a par- open space. Um, a park is, uh, is too nice of a word for what it is. It's sort of a bit of a wasteland, uh, but it's really like shooting fish in a barrel. So the 50 troops they fire for 10 minutes and they fire 1650 rounds, and uh, People have nowhere to to run because there are only four small exits that quickly get blocked up. So people are stampede and and you know trample on each other, and and the result is 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 absolutely devastating. Um, the British they eventually acknowledged or accepted that 379 people had been killed, and about three times that wounded, uh, and my research would lead me to suggest that something like five to six hundred people were killed and three times that wounded. With that said, we'll never know exactly how many. And you could also say that the exact numbers don't really matter. Uh, it, 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 it's, not, it's not more or less of a monstrosity, you know, regardless of whether 300 people died or 1,000 people died. It doesn't really change right. how horrific it was. Yeah, it's, it's that's similar to um, the work I've been doing on the uh, 
the uh, Indonesian's military military's uh, uh, destruction of the Indonesian Communist Party and was it 500,000 that they killed? Was it a million? Was it 1.5 million? Was it 3 million as one, one general uh, responsible for the murders claimed? It, when, you're, when you're juggling hundreds of thousands of murdered people, it, the exact number starts to become irrelevant. And actually, that the, I think that the, the vagueness about that number when you've got such mass atrocities um, belies, or underlines the point that this was something truly, truly horrific. So, um, in the in the days following the um the massacre uh you you talk about this in uh, forces of terror about april 14th to april 30th how did how did british repression continue after this uh the massacre itself on april 13th uh a, a curfew was put in place which uh meant that those who were wounded after the massacre couldn't receive medical help and a lot of people died from their wounds uh but there's also public flockings mass arrests uh, and in the street where this female missionary, she was attacked, uh, the infamous crawling order is put in place, which requires all Indian men to crawl along the street on their bellies. Mm-hmm. And there are British guards put in place who uh, are there for a week and who are basically urinating in the local well, uh, killing pigeons in a nearby temple. Uh, and there are some boys who are said to have been the attackers of, of the missionary who are taken there and flocked publicly. So you have the sort of, um, and these are referred to as fancy punishment because the British are basically doing whatever they feel is required to restore colonial authority, which is basically, it's, it's collective punishment. Uh, electricity and water is also shut off to the entire city of Amritsar. Uh, and, that, and of course, Amritsar is only part of, of the wider unrest that takes place in Punjab. Um, and that's that's mm-hmm. re- so it, all. All these various measures that follow up on the the massacre itself, and you know, purposely in, insulting. I mean, the, the your description of um, the curfew keeping people from accessing the hospital that was that was a real um, real eye opener for me. Yes, and and it's and it speaks to the the logic of of colonial uh, violence, which I think is is not calculated. When General Dai is asked about it, you know. You, and he said, well, if, if people wanted medical aid, they could just ask for it. He said, well, he, he had actually enforced the curfew right after the massacre, making it impossible for people to receive aid. And I don't think it was this calculated uh, evil mindset. I think it was complete callousness and indifference to Indian suffering, which speaks to a sort of a deep-seated, you know, kind of, 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 of uh, well, colonial mentality which where racism plays a large role and of course none of this was would, would be conceivable uh if the enemy in inverted commas had been white i mean even in ireland and the sort of the, mm-hmm. the, the policy of, of reprisals that takes place in the years in the following years none of that gets gets anywhere near what happens in in india in 1919 yeah yeah so I wanted to ask you about how the rest of the world came to know about the massacre and, and the general reaction. And maybe you can also talk about the Hunter Commission, which was the official inquiry into the massacre and what it was able to accomplish and what it was unable to accomplish. Yeah, so because martial law is, is enforced, uh, it means that there's a complete shutdown on press. So actually nobody really knows what happens. 
uh, and 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 it's only piecemeal that news escapes from Punjab. So actually, Indian nationalists, including Gandhi, undertake their own independent investigation, trying to find out what has taken place, and that kind of forces the British to actually try and find out what happened. So there was there was no uh, interest really from official hold to find out how many people have been killed. That's something that they, they, they tried to find out months later when they were forced to it because Indian nationalists were actually able to to release and, and inform the press uh, outside of Punjab about this. So the news, sort of the details of the massacre don't reach London till December 1919, uh, which is quite remarkable when you think about it. And it and it and it creates really a, 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 a scandal and splits society because um, it proves to those sort of more liberal-minded that conservative imperialism is is an immorally unsustainable endeavor, while it makes the empire at the same time makes the empire really really difficult to defend, which is indeed why Winston Churchill he he throws Dyer under the bus, and the the government at the time. Um, criticizes Dyer for his actions. Dyer is is really ill at that point of time in early twenty uh, in early nineteen twenty, uh, and and is is goes on goes on sick leave, but is actually forced to relinquish his command. Um, and and he's got widespread support from um, the conservative press and a lot of conservative politicians, uh, I, but uh, he he has to. Resigned from the army, uh, and so he he loses part of his pension. But that's that's as far as it goes in terms of him being actually punished. But in many ways, the debate about the massacre uh, really becomes a, a sort of a proxy debate about uh, Ireland, which begins to to consume British politics, uh, but also the future of the British Empire. Uh, and so. Already at the time, it it became this event uh, that, that that signified something else than 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 sort of the the actions themselves and what people had done. And Dyer he becomes this this guy who's he's the only one who's ever in any way really um, uh, seen to be responsible for the violence. Although he's by no means unique. I mean, it's one of the things I try to to argue in in the book that. There are, there are talks about um, bombing Amritsar from the air with airplanes before Dyer even turns up. Um, so, I mean, he's not... And, and you find other British officers who, who, who literally say the very same things that, that Dyer did. So the very idea that he's somehow... So he's, he's, far, he's far from an aberration. Yeah, you know, and I mean, it, it, I, don't, I don't see how that, that notion could, could ever be, you know, sustainable because... He's, it's almost like he's quoting from, you know, Calwell's Small Wars, a sort of military manual of, of colonial warfare, when he talks about setting an example, uh, striking hard, and don't showing weakness in the face of natives in inverted comma. Um, and you could say to some extent, it would be nice to say that it was sort of the last gasp of a colonial mindset, and that after, you know, the lessons learned from the Amritsar massacre points towards a sort of more humane counterinsurgency strategy uh, that sort of takes us past the Second World War into the wars of decolonization. But that's, of course, not true. I think um, 
the 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 euphemisms are changed a bit uh but but the perceived necessity to inflict this kind of violence actually never goes away mm-hmm. so uh general Dyrick has official sanction gets something equivalent to a dishonorable discharge withdrawn from um from India sent back to England lose parts lose parts of his pension but he is you mentioned the conservative press has a lot of support for him but also uh, the British in India, and also many in the British civilian population at home. What do, what do they think of him, and how do they respond to him? Well, he is, and this in some ways uh, has some parallels to what's recently taken place in the U.S. in terms of uh, President Trump's pardon of of, of uh, war criminals. Um, he is yeah, this is the, the SEAL officer, yeah, yeah. and others. Um, General Dai is seen as a brave soldier who did his horrible duty, but who was thrown under uh, the bus by liberal armchair politicians who put him in a dangerous position or situation in the first place. Uh, and so you have this outburst of popular support and uh, a quite substantial sum of money, £26,000, are collected uh, through pub- public uh, funds uh, or public do- donations to him. Um, Women, English women in India, they collect money and sort of describes him as he saved them from the outrages of 1857 recurring. And that's when you can really see how this is really, it's not about the unrest in 1919 and the political turmoil and the rise of Indian nationalism as much as, as it is about this sort of 1857 as, as a nightmare scenario that still drives British perceptions of, of Indian unrest. Uh, the kind of uh, the Morning Post, the ultra-conservative newspaper that, that organizes the collection for Dyer, they publish the names of the people who donate money and it's sort of, some people donate one pound, two pound, fifty shillings, stuff like that. But the, the, the pseudonyms that they write under is, is always something like someone who can't forget 1857 or somebody who served in the empire. So, you know, General Dyer's case becomes really about the the British Empire uh, in in a much larger debate about the changing nature of of the global political landscape after the First World War. Yeah, and and as you point out, there's so much resonance with events today. It sounds like uh, those could be similar Twitter handles of uh, uh, Trump supporters, uh, you know, praising his his amnesty of, uh, of certain war criminals. Um, what what about the fate of O'Dwyer, who was the uh, civilian head of the Punjab? So he um, he's actually uh, tries to exonerate Dyer for a very long time. Uh, in 1924, there's a libel case. He sues an Indian politicians for describing quite you know briefly that you know there was a reign of terror during martial law, which is objectively speaking accurate but he the indian uh politician he uh, he actually loses that case and so that high court judgment in 1924 actually exonerates dyer and says you know what he did was right and he was it was wrong for politicians to this uh, sort of liberal politicians to disown him uh so o'dwyer's name becomes linked to that of dyer and Dyer himself he he's has uh, several strokes and he dies in 1927 but O'Dwyer is assassinated by an Indian nationalist, uh, Udam Hussain, uh, uh, Udam Shahid, uh, who in uh, 1940, as sort of a belated revenge for uh, 
sorry, Udam Singh is his yeah, name. 21 years later. Yeah, uh, uh, by That's a right. Sikh called Udam Singh. Um, and that is seen as, oh, this finally has, has the Amritsar massacre been avenged. Uh, but by that time, of course, Indian, the Indian national struggle has, has come underway and uh, many other things ha- have happened. Um, but that, that, that is the narrative today you, you, you see in India. At, at Jalan Wallabak, there's a statue of Udam Singh outside of the main gate into Amritsar, the statue of Udam Singh. So, so, so the commemoration is very much about sort of heroic struggle, but also the avenging the Amritsar massacre and the sort of outburst of patriotic sentiments that it uh, occasioned. And again, that's, that's, that's looking at the Amritsar massacre, not as an event that has significance in and of itself, uh, but more so as a catalyst of, of other, other people's heroic actions. Right, right. You, using that history for a political purpose. Um, so in your conclusion, you discuss Prime Minister David Cameron's visit to Amritsar in 2013. Can you tell us about that and, and your take on his statement there? Yeah, so that's been that's been since the Queen, she visited Amritsar in 1997. And uh, Prince Philip, he said something racist, as he's wont to do. Uh, she didn't apologize. Uh, well, Prince, Prince Philip is particularly good at that. He I certainly is. Um, uh, David Cameron did not apologize. He quoted Churchill, actually. Uh, in saying this was a monstrous and isolated events and that we have to remember the British, they stand for the freedom of speech. Uh, so so you, you, you end up in this strange situation where um, call for an apology is actually used as, a, as, a, as an occasion to celebrate British exceptionalism and defense of, of liberal uh, virtues, uh, but no actual apology. Uh, and there was no apology in 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 2019 when uh theresa may she expressed regret uh but no apology what what did happen and which really surprised me was that um i think it was in september uh, of, of 2019 the archbishop of canterbury justin welby he went to amritsa and he prostrated himself in in front of the Amritsa, uh, the Jalian Wallabak Memorial, and apologized in his capacity uh, of a religious person. Uh, and so I actually thought that was a more uh, meaningful gesture because historical apologies are really political rituals. Uh, and and uh, I find it hard to see anything good coming from a conservative politician, British politician today. Uh, making some kind of circumscribed non-apology uh, at, at the memorial. Um, but of course, that, that, that's the issue of an apology divides opinions quite, uh, quite a bit. All right. You're not holding your, your breath for Boris Johnson to deliver some eloquent words uh, of healing? Well, I mean, the question is whether you would want him to. I mean, he, he'd start quoting Kipling <laughs> if he ever turned up at Amritsa. Uh, and I think sort of... <laughs> the backlash would potentially be quite disastrous. Uh, so no, I'm not holding my breath. Okay. So um, you end the book uh, with an epilogue that talks about the memorial site in Jualang uh, today. Um, and you mentioned this previously, but what's your, what's your critique of the memorial that's there right now? 
it's not a critique as much as uh, almost a, a bit of a sadness that there that the historical event has almost been completely effaced. Uh, there are some bullet holes left, uh, but what you really see celebrated there is this nationalist myth of heroic sacrifice, uh, and 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 uh, there's topiary soldiers there if if you want to sort of gauge the the uh, sort of the, the somber <laughs> atmosphere that's invoked by the park <laughs> itself. Um, but but it's it's. The, the, there's a gallery of, of martyrs. I mean, this is very much the language we're talking about. This there's, there's a sign when you come inside the, the the park that says this ground is hallowed by the mingled blood of 2,000 Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs. So it's, it's very much sort of a, a post-1947 secular nationalist narrative um, that, that's being celebrated. Uh, and that's just very, very... And they use the number 2,000. Yeah. I mean, I mean the, the numbers, you know... I mean that's one of as a as a as a historian, uh, you know, it it I find frustrating how little the max the facts they matter uh, at the very site of the event itself. I mean, there's something called the Martyrs Well, where there's a sign that says 120 bodies were pulled out from this well, people who presumably fell into the well and drowned during the massacre. And I've, I've looked at all the records and the Indian nationalists at the time, they described one or two people falling into the well. So these are just the kind of obvious sort of myths that, that grow up uh, or that emerge at sites like this. Uh, so, I mean, really what, what I wanted to indicate is that we, we have to recognize that, that these big historical events uh, don't simply happen. They're, they're constructed afterwards. And, and to some extent, you can say the narrative of the Amritsar massacre that you find today is, to some extent at least, an invented tradition. Uh, and, and I'm not going to tell people that it's wrong and it's silly to believe in. I just want to say, you know, it's, well, here's, here's a different account. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we've taken up a bunch of your time and really appreciate that. But before you go, um, can you suggest one or two books related to either Amritsar or studies of colonial violence that, um, that you would recommend? Well, I mean, this is, this is a bit awkward, uh, but I would highly recommend (laughs) your work. Um, you've written, uh, uh, absolutely brilliant. Uh, no, this isn't awkward at all. This is delightful. (laughs) Go on. Well, but I mean, (laughs) your work has been inspirational for me. Um, and so uh, you, you, you've got a couple of absolutely brilliant articles uh, on uh, fear and loathing and Hanoi and of pirates, postcards and beheadings. Uh, but more recently, you, you, you published your um, the great uh, rat massacre of Hanoi as, as a comic book from Oxford University Press, which is uh, a, a extremely original format, but also an absolutely brilliant historical analysis. Uh, so if, if I can recommend something, it would be your work. Well, Kim, thank you. That that's very nice. I'm I'm very flattered. Um, but aside from the Great Hanoi Rat Hunt, could you recommend two books um, pertinent to this conversation that the listeners would find valuable? Uh, well, yes. Uh, there is a other than you, there's a lot of uh, very good literature on, on colonial violence. Uh, one particular favorite of mine is uh, Swedish travel writer Sven Lindqvist's um, "Exterminate All the Brutes." Uh, from the early 90s, 1990s, which is sort of part travelogue and part uh, meditation on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And it's, 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 
it's a fairly brief book, but it's really interestingly written and really engaging. Yeah, that that is a fabulous book, and and it's brilliant the way that he links his reflections on colonial violence with the origins of the Nazi genocide. Yes, uh, and, and of course, since he wrote that, uh, a lot of academics have sort of picked up on that, and of course, it, it points back to Hannah Arendt's work uh, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a wonderful read. You got? Do you have one more? Um, I'm a great fan of uh, the work of Anne Stoller, which is not necessarily very accessible. Uh, but one of her articles uh, is called "In Cold Blood," uh, which is about the murder of of uh, a Dutch uh, planter family uh, in Sumatra in the 19th century. Uh, and that's I just absolutely love that article because it really brings out the the complicated dynamics of colonial violence, but also how it's tied into uh, particular narratives about uh, colonial fears, essentially. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that you have you have worked on as well, and, and you use this really evocative phrase, um, the, the the deadly combination of white vulnerability and white power. Uh, and, and so Stola's article um, really speaks to that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I am, as you know, a huge Anne Stoller fan, and... Um... I think that article might be folded into her, her her one of her more recent books, Along the Archival Grain. I think that's a chapter in there, or at least she discusses that case. Uh, I, the, I, um, the articles in I hmm? I, uh, I I published um, a version of of that uh, article in in an edited volume called uh, Engaging Colonial Knowledge uh, about ten years ago. Maybe that's what you're thinking of. Okay, great. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Well, hey, so w- what are you working on now? Uh, more violence, uh, but um, this time uh, American colonial violence in the Philippines in the early 20th century, um, which is sadly in many ways very uh, relevant, uh, as we have Donald Trump talking about uh, General Pershing using pig's blood against terrorists, and he's alluding to the Philippines. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to get uh, the American side of the story, uh, uh, put it into the same analytical framework as, as we usually do with uh, British, French, German colonial violence. Because really what I think is uh, that all these Western imperial powers have far more in common um, than is usually assumed. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, as a Southeast Asianist, I welcome you to the region. Um, you're going to love it. Um, so thank that's you. great. Well, I look forward to seeing that seeing that work. And um, thank you for your time, Kim. Oh, thank you for having me. So this has been a discussion with Kim Wagner of the University of London, Queen Mary, about his new book, Amritsar 1919, An Empire Fear and the Making of a Massacre, out with Yale University Press. I'm Michael G. Van, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.